morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm your host, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. equities rebounded as new home sales surged and healthcare, rally, healthcare shares rallied. China's central bank head may have to step down. And the SEC investigates PIMCO for pricing irregularities. Starbucks buys out its Japanese partner. Today we'll get an update of the Asian regional outlook with Shang Jin Wei, chief economist of the Asian Development Bank. We'll also ask whether the string of analyst downgrades on corporate earnings is symptomatic of a looming slowdown. Joining us for that discussion is Shuli Ren, Hong Kong-based columnist for Barron's. Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting joins me this morning as guest host. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So let's take a look at today's top stories. Uh, we'll look at the markets first. U.S. equities rebounded as new home sales surged and healthcare shares rallied. The S&P 500 advanced eight-tenths of a percent to 1,998, and the Dow Jones climbed nine-tenths of a percent to 17,210. The FTSE 100 rose half a percent to 6,706. The Hang Seng Index edged up 84 points to close at 23,921. The euro held declines against the US dollar. Currently, one euro will buy you 1.27 US dollars. Peter, Let's talk about some of these major movements overnight, shall we? Yes, a lot of volatility now in currency markets, in commodity markets, and also spreading to um, equity markets. So the thing that prompted um, yesterday's move was we had yet another piece of data out of Europe, which was bad. In fact, all the data out of Europe seems to be unremittingly bad at the moment. But the latest one was the IFO Institute survey of, of business confidence in Germany. They survey 7,000 companies on the business climate in Europe, and the the index fell once again for the fifth consecutive month to, to 104.7. It was 106.3 um, in August, so that was below expectations. And this is important because Germany is the driver of, um, of, of European growth. It's really been the only country that has been um, managing to grow. And, and this sort of number is consistent with growth in Germany below 1%. And we've got France stagnating. It had two quarters of zero growth, Italy in recession. So the three big economies in Europe are either slowing down or already in, um, in recession. So should we be upset about the slowdown in Europe or relieved, uh, you know, that stocks have rebounded in the U.S. after a three-day lo- losing streak? Well, it's having an impact everywhere. If you look at the dollar, um, the dollar is surging. The U.S. dollar index, which is a sort of a measure of a basket of um, currencies against the U.S. dollar, has now risen for 10 straight weeks. It's the first time in the 43-year history of the U.S. dollar index that has happened. So it's, it's at its highest level since July 2010. So the euro has now dropped below 1%. 1.28 to the dollar. The yen is falling as well. That's now below 109 um, to the dollar. And we're seeing big moves in some of the commodities markets. We're seeing oil is now at a two-year low. Gold hit an eight-month low this week. Copper's at uh, a three-month low. So that the effects are, are spreading. And we're seeing this now. You know, the dollar index is now having an effect on emerging markets, which have fallen um, for 13 out of the last 14 trading days. Indeed, gold is currently at $1,216 per ounce. Well, moving on to our next story of the day, the Wall Street Journal says that China's central bank governor, Zhou Xiaochan, may lose his job in a reshuffle that follows internal battles over overhauling the economy. Mr. Zhou is a leading advocate of pro-market financial reforms, but the newspaper says that the move to replace him may be more about shoring up the rule of Xi Jinping, as Alex Price reports. 
Quoting officials with knowledge of the plans, the newspaper reported that President Xi Jinping is considering replacing Mr Zhu as part of a reshuffle. Mr Xi wants more allies in top government, military and Communist Party positions, and personnel changes are expected around a major party meeting next month. In a statement to the Wall Street Journal, the People's Bank of China said Mr Zhu, 66, would not be stepping down soon. The top contender for the job is Guo Xuqing, a former banker and securities regulator who is currently governor of eastern Shandong province. Mr Zhu, who has led the central bank since 2002, has been the architect of broad financial reforms that have spawned fledgling capital markets, liberalised some interest rates and broken the peg between China's yuan and the US dollar. And also in China, the chief uh, executive officer of mainland shoemaker Ultrasonic, who was dismissed last week after taking off with huge sums of money, has admitted to what he calls borrowing the funds for personal use. Wu Qingyong promised to pay Ultrasonic back, although he didn't say how much he'd taken. Last week, the company said that Mr. Wu and his eldest son, its chief operating officer, had absconded with several billion yuan. But the CEO resurfaced on Monday, saying that he'd been traveling and he'd lost his phone. He told Bloomberg that it's not the first time he's borrowed money from the company. I borrowed some money from the company, but not large amounts, just small amounts, like I've done in the past. I needed money for temporary use, but not much, and I would have returned it. His younger son, Wu Mingjun, says that he doesn't think there's a problem with borrowing money from the German-listed company for personal use. I feel that this isn't the problem. We specified when it would be returned, when the money was taken out around September 5th or 6th. We had told the finance department we would return it late in September. In Hong Kong, the development secretary, Paul Chan, is hopeful that the government will exceed its land sale target for private housing for the fiscal year ending in March. Mr. Chan said that the government expects to reach 90% of its target by December. And he announced that the government would sell six more residential sites between October and December, which will add over 1,200 flats to the housing supply. But Mr. Chan says that overshooting the target will not result in an oversupply in the market. For this year, the target for private housing land supply is 18,800. We are quite confident in achieving that. But the target we give ourselves is not just that. Uh, the target we give ourselves is over and above that because in the past two years the land supply as compared to the target uh, have fall short. We, we are trying very hard to catch up part of it. And moving on to western shores, uh, U.S. coffee chain Starbucks says that it is buying out its Japanese partner in a deal worth over 900 million U.S. dollars. This ends an almost 20-year joint venture. Japan is Starbucks' second biggest market in terms of sales and has some of its most profitable outlets despite a sluggish economy. The Starbucks in the Ginza region of Tokyo was the chain's first store outside of North America. Taking full ownership of its outlets in Japan will give Starbucks the opportunity to expand sales for its canned coffee and its other ready-to-drink products in Japan. And investigators from the SEC's Enforcement Division are examining whether a $3.6 billion PIMCO total return 
exchange-traded fund bought investments at discounted prices but relied on higher valuations for the investments when the fund calculated the value of its holdings shortly thereafter. Such a maneuver could make it seem as though the ETF had scored quick gains when it was in fact taking advantage of variations in the way that some investments are valued in the bond market. Peter, uh, this one is definitely worth you know looking at a little bit more closely uh, because it's reminiscent of what happened back in 2008 with the banks perhaps saying that the value of their mortgages were higher than they actually were. How concerned should an investor be? Is it simply an accounting mistake or is there more to it? Well, it is important, first of all, because ETFs are very popular around the world, including here in Hong Kong with with retail investors. And and PIMCO um, runs the world's largest bond fund. It has a very high profile star fund manager, Bill Bill Gross, and it's his ETF that's being investigated here. What what they're looking into is it's it's about some of the liquid securities that were bought, particularly mortgage-backed bonds that were bought and put into the ETF, which are very difficult to value because they are so illiquid. So fund managers tend to value them using sort of models that, that come up with a, a fair value. If you then go and buy these bonds in the market below fair value, they immediately have a, have a profit the moment you've, you value them back at, back at fair value. So the SEC is looking into this and saying, you know, and asking itself, is this just a valuation issue or was PIMCO trying to mislead the market and, you know, conduct some sort of market manipulation in the way in which it prices these um, sort of bonds? Now, interestingly, the SEC is not looking at anyone else. You know, there are a lot of ETFs around based on bonds, but it's only PIMCO that at the moment appears to be um, investigated. Yeah, PIMCO hasn't, uh, Bill Gross, I should say, from PIMCO, hasn't had a great run this last year. There have been several things happening. He hasn't been uh, in, he's been in the spotlight when Mohammed El Aryan left. And uh, there's been all sorts of speculation as to whether there were rifts between the two and sort of what's actually happening. My question is about this particular situation, why does a company like PIMCO need to rely on a third party to value their bonds? Well, because in, in some ways, there's, there's a conflict of interest. If you buy the bond, you put it into your fund, and then you go and value it, it leads to all sorts of potential problems, as we saw um, in the past, back in 2008, with you know, investment banks valuing their own portfolios, with, a, with, with mortgages being you know, misvalued. So the, there is a need for a third party to step in and try and provide some sort of independent valuation. But the problem is on something that is not very easy to trade, how do you value it and, you know, and how reliable are those valuations? And is there a way in which um, a fund manager can sort of take advantage of the lack of transparency to, to maybe boost the value of their own ETF? Because these funds are very, very competitive. Everyone wants to have you know, successful ETFs that are liquid and highly traded. So there's a lot of pressure um, you know, to, to make them uh, perform well and to, to have a lot of retail investor activity in them. Now, how much of a dent does this make on PIMCO's overall reputation? I mean, its overall portfolio is something like $222 billion. Mm-hmm. This particular fund is worth $3.6 billion. So it's a very small fraction of its you know, uh, overall holdings. Does it matter? Well, reputational risk is very important. And I think maybe it, it's, it's a, the culmination of a number of things. As you mentioned earlier, there was an acrimonious departure with Mohammed Al Arian, the chairman. The, the performance of the total return, return fund that Bill Gross has been managing hasn't been great um, sort of recently. And now on top of that, you have this. It all starts to, to 
uh, to, to chip away at the sort of you know the reputation of the the firm and the, and the fund manager overall. Now a lot depends upon the outcome, of course, of this investigation, but uh, and that that will remain to be seen. But it, it's another thing um, that that really is sort of a black mark against Pimco. Okay, Peter. So moving on to something else interesting that you've brought up, uh, you say that it's an old adage of Wall Street that no one rings a bell at the top of the market, um, but bells have been rung just last Friday uh, with Alibaba the world's yeah. largest IPO. Uh, but you say that this could perhaps be a sign that the U.S. market has reached a peak. Tell us why you say that. Well, there's all sorts of warning signs at the moment that are that are flashing red. Some of them have been flashing red for a while or amber for a while. And, and it's very, very hard to to predict the very top in a market. It's, it's easy in hindsight. But what you can do is look at some of the, the some of the signals that are starting to appear and also look at what are your chances of getting, um, you know, a good return from a particular market in the future. And, and some of the things that are important is, first of all, the pickup in volatility um, that's going on in a whole range of asset classes, including equity markets now, and volatility pickup tends to, um, you know, come before a, come before a decline. We're seeing a slowdown in, um, in in world economic growth. The OECD has cut its 2004 growth forecasts. The World Trade Organization has cut their forecast for, for trading goods. We're seeing the end of QE coming. Um, we know for sure that uh, you know the Fed will withdraw its stimulus completely in October. Yep, that's um, all everyone has ever been talking. About about this last week. And also inflation. Inflation expectations are, are plummeting around the world. Actually, that's not good for, for equity markets and particularly in a world that's awash with debt at the moment. Um, so global inflation is now at 56-month lows. We're seeing Europe, um, you know, 15 out of the 18 Eurozone countries have inflation below 1%. And some of them, such as Portugal and Spain, are in outright deflation. And, and Japan itself is exporting some of that deflation with the, with the falling yen around, around the world. So this is impacting other economies in China, in Europe and, and elsewhere. So, Peter, what are you saying for the lay investor out there? Is it time to divest? Well, this is one of those things where you never get out of a market completely and rush for, for putting everything 100% in cash. But what you do start looking at is saying it's time to start taking money off the table. These markets have had a good run. Um, some of them are looking very stretched on historic valuation bases, including in the US. So, you know, you start taking profits on on good positions, maybe pruning some of the underperformers and starting to put more of the portfolio into, into cash. But you never go 100% into cash. But there are warning signs out there. Um, and these markets, in some cases, are looking um, pretty stretched. And we're seeing a big pickup in volatility, which itself should make people um, nervous in some of the other asset classes, particularly commodities, FX and, and interest rates. Okay, well, uh, very soon we will be talking with the chief economist of the Asian Development Bank, Shan Jingwei, about uh, the Asian region, which uh, they claim is growing at a faster pace than anywhere else in the world. That's right after this message. For marine safety during fireworks displays or major events at sea, passengers should note where the vessel's emergency exits are. Pay attention to the crew's advice and note the location of life jackets and how to put them on. Parents, please look after your children and ensure they are in a life jacket at all times. The coxswain must keep a passenger and crew list in case it is needed and refrain from overloading or speeding. Passengers and crews should work together closely. Enjoy boating activities. Be smart, be safe.
Well, developing Asia remains the fastest growing region globally, despite slower than expected growth in major industrial countries, as key economies in the region move ahead with structural reforms. This is according to a brand new report by the Asian Development Bank. And joining us to discuss this now is Shang Jin Wei, the chief economist at the ADB. Good morning, Shang. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. So uh, why do you say that Asia is developing at, you know, the fastest pace um, compared to sort of anywhere else in the world? And what are the key drivers of the growth that we're seeing here? Well, so let's look at the numbers. The Asia uh, Pacific is expected to grow at uh, uh, somewhat above uh, 6% for both this and next year, which is much higher than, of course, advanced countries, which is only uh, growing at, uh, you know, one and a half percentage points. Uh, and much higher than other developing uh, regions. So, so that makes Asia to be the fastest growing uh, region and remain so in the near future. Uh, some of the uh, drivers have to do with domestic uh, fundamentals and as, as well as the promises uh, that will be uh, that will be uh, that will come with uh, reform programs in many of our major countries in the region, inclu- uh, including uh, uh, India, Indonesia, and so on. So, so Shang-Jin, we're seeing sort of global growth cut um, sort of with the OECD, with the World Trade Organization, um, and expectations for other parts of the world are not looking so good. Can Asia continue to, to outperform like this when the rest of the world is slowing down? Well, the rest of the world uh, certainly affects uh, Asia. Uh, you know, the uh, both uh, uh, U.S. and Europe and Japan are major uh, export markets for developing countries in Asia. So in that sense, they are, they are all uh, linked. Uh, but uh, advanced country, first of all, is a mixed bag. You know, U.S. Uh, is doing relatively better, uh, much better than uh, Europe. Uh, and uh, Asia, uh, many of the Asian countries have closer link uh, with the U.S. than with uh, Europe. Uh, that's uh, number one. Number two, many uh, countries in Asia are holding up uh, uh, especially well on the, on the strength of its own fundamentals. If you look at China, for example, um, uh, uh, the key drivers to Chinese growth are domestic consumption and investment, and not so much about uh, net exports. In fact, net exports uh, uh, in total contributes negatively to uh, growth in recent years. In any case, it's a very small part of the overall growth uh, uh, contributed. Can you really compare one to the other? I mean, the situation in China, for example, is where the expectations are not as high. And, you know, Goldman Sachs has been sort of cutting its expectations uh, recently. I mean, still a considerably high uh, target as compared to the rest of the world, no doubt, but certainly lower than previously expected. But can you really compare it to a place like India, for example, where expectations are top of the charts? Well, I mean, so there are obviously different uh, economies, but, you know, on, uh, on uh, China, so obviously China is growing less fast than uh, its own uh, recent uh, past. Uh, I'm also aware of, uh, you know, uh, investment, other investment banks' uh, forecasts. But China is still uh, not, you know, there's, I think the talk about collapsing growth uh, is uh, uh, over. Uh, overblown Chinese domestic, do, domestic consumption looks uh, uh, still uh, reasonable. Plus, there's still a lot of room uh, for productivity increase associated with uh, you know various reforms that government says it wants to do uh, and, and is uh, starting to do some of them.
But in China, we need to see a rebalancing of the economy, don't we, away from investment, which is a very high part of GDP, and more towards um, con consumption. And, and as that happens, there's going to be a natural slowdown. Can, can the Chinese government stick with this if we get several quarters of, of slower growth and move towards rebalancing the economy? And how is that slowdown going to affect the rest of Asia? There are many dimensions to this rebalancing um, uh, 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 strategy. Uh, one is to rebalancing away from over-reliance on exports. That's happening at a spectacular pace. You know, Chinese economy is not that much export-driven, uh, net export-driven uh, uh, anyway. Uh, that's clearly in the data. It's most likely to be so in the, uh, in, in, in the near future. Uh, as it comes to uh, investment, you know, a lot of people talk about you know, that China is investing too much. We have to be careful about uh, this. China, you know, uh, in fact, there are a lot of uh, uh, firms with very, very good projects and uh, probably do not have uh, enough uh, funding to uh, do them. So the Chinese investment pattern is more of uh, re-optimizing composition, who's doing the investment, uh, where to put the investment, than overall level uh, of investment. What about Southeast Asia? What can we expect from there? The Southeast uh, Asia uh, economy, I mean, you know, Thailand obviously is, is the weakest among, uh, say, ASEAN uh, countries. Most other uh, countries you know, are not doing as well, but doing uh, okay. Probably will grow, uh, you know, uh, somewhere uh, around six uh, percent. Thailand will be substantially uh, lower uh, than that. So the question is: uh, Is any of this uh, symptomatic of a looming slowdown? It doesn't really appear so from uh, what we're hearing from the Asian Development Bank. But we will ask Shuli Ren, who is a Hong Kong-based columnist for Baron. That is right coming up right now. So revenue generated by Macau casinos is likely to contract this month. Expect, uh, we're expecting casino revenues to fall between 14 to 18% for November from a year earlier. And this is according to estimates by Wells Fargo and Nomura. Steve Wynn spoke from Macau yesterday, and he had a great quote. He said, I don't give a damn. And he was referring to revenue projections for next month's uh, National Day Golden Week holiday. It's actually coming up next week. He said, I'm not concerned. I think that the future of Macau is terrific. We have invested more in Macau than we've made, and that shows that as a capitalist, I am completely confident that I am reinvesting in this country. I'm joined now by Chris Oliver, our producer. Chris, what do you think of his comments? Well, it's going to be interesting to see. There's uh, a lot of analysts have uh, remained persistently reluctant to downgrade their Macau ratings. So these uh, recent estimates about uh, a slower September come as something of a surprise. I, I want to get uh, Shuli Ren's opinion on that. Uh, what's behind the, the downgrade, and do you think it's uh, a bearish sign for Macau? Well, good morning, Chris. Um, first of all, I, I would like to say why the analysts have uh, been uh, very persistent on the um, a fairly bullish long-term outlook, but cautious for the near term. Well, they're, they're comparing Macau to Las Vegas. Las Vegas has been growing at the high, uh, at like 10% for 20 years, even uh, since uh, uh, late 1970s, even though US, uh, the U.S. economy was growing at uh, 3% a year or something, right? And then they are looking at Macau and say, oh, we only have uh, 10 good years in Macau and China is a much bigger market. That's why they say, oh, in the long term, we're still bullish on Macau. But in the short term, we are seeing uh, three consecutive months of uh, decline now. So uh, uh, it seems like uh, investors are taking a pretty different view from the analysts. 
So I, I'm wondering if uh, casino revenues actually fall in September. Is that the first time they've fallen without a kind of uh, – uh, like a curb on tourist visits to Macau? Is this, is this something no, unusual? No, they, they fell in August as well. Okay, so it's a recent trend, this yeah. sort of uh, cooling uh, consumer outlook. Yep. Um, you, I, I noticed that uh, in the Wells Fargo note, when they downgraded, uh, there was no real reason, there's no real trigger apart from just sort of random events. It seems like a smoking ban, what you, uh, what you quote is uh, increasingly negative news flow. So why this sort of sudden shift in sentiment. Is there any reason for it? Is this sort of like a sudden awakening among analysts? Uh, Chris, like uh, if you look at uh, Macau's revenue, right, two-thirds are VIP gaming and one-third is uh, mass market gaming uh, for people like us. And these two-thirds of the uh, VIP gaming revenue, um, it seems like a lot of rich Chinese people are not coming to Macau because of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. So I was going to say, surely, is this this due to, you know, some of the the sort of austerity that's being imposed on Chinese officials and and, and the crackdown on on corruption that's going on? Is is that having a big effect on on Macau? Because we know a lot of the the money is coming from mainland China. Uh, You're absolutely right, Peter. I I just want to step back and say that uh, uh, the VIP gamblers, as far as I know, are not tend not to be uh, government officials. They, however, a lot of them have connections to the government sector. They just want to lie low right now. And, and Macau itself seems to be cracking down on some of the the, the stranger practices. I mean, you, you hear stories of you know people going into jewelry shops, buying watches on credit cards, and then one minute later giving the watch back for a large <laughs> amount of cash, less lesser commission. Is is, the, is Macau also cracking down on that, and that's starting to have an effect? Um, probably the the casino operators will say no, but uh, uh, like that is one way of capital flight that uh, we know about for a long time, right? Like you you use your union pay card. And and then you basically, uh, when you return your expensive watch, you are go- going to get your Macau money back or Hong Kong money back, and you can bring right to Hong Kong or where, where else, right? Mm-hmm. So, so like uh, I can see if Xi Jinping wants to do the anti-corruption campaign, he wants to control the capital flow out of China. And so we we we, we uh, were told recently that. Uh, uh, a standard hotel in a five-star resort is still around six thousand Hong Kong dollars a night, showing that there's no shortage of people taking up hotel rooms. So it's kind of funny that uh, revenue seems to kind of be sort of softening at this stage. What, I mean, is it just people are gambling less, or what, what really accounts for this? Possibly level? that that's uh, that's one reason. Like uh, the analysts have been still reasonably bullish. Uh, I mean, next week is the golden week. We are not going to Macau because we know the rooms are all booked, right? So people are just possibly gambling less and uh, and entertaining themselves more. Okay, thank you so much to our guests for this morning. That's Shuli Ren, Hong Kong-based columnist for Barron's, and Shangjin Wei, Chief Economist of the Asian Development Bank. A quick look at the numbers before we wrap up. The Nikkei is open up uh, almost 1% to 16,325. Australia's ASX index is also up half a percent to 5,406. And Seoul's Kospi also up uh, three-tenths of a percent to 2,004. 42. This is Money for Nothing. It's almost 8.30 a.m. And I am your host, Renita Malhotra-Hora. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with sunny intervals. There'll be isolated showers and the visibility will be relatively low in the morning. Maximum temperatures around 30 degrees. Right now, it's 27 degrees and the relative humidity is 82%. It's now time for the news with Samantha Butler. 
A university students group says it'll try to arrest the chief executive CY Leung at Government House this evening unless he meets them for talks on political reform before 11am. The Federation of Students issued an ultimatum to Mr Leung on Tuesday saying students would escalate their action if he failed to meet them. They're staging a week-long class boycott to protest against Beijing's restrictive framework on political reform here. They're also holding rallies at Tamar Park outside government headquarters. Demonstrators ignored warnings from police yesterday that the rally was unauthorised. Marcus Lau, a Hong Kong University student, said he was undeterred. I might get caught and I might get arrested or get prosecuted, but I still have the right to stand out. And to consider both elements, I'd outweigh my responsibility to stand out as a citizen to tell the Chinese government that how bad Hong Kong people want democracy more than my own risk of being prosecuted. The United Nations Security Council, chaired by President Obama, has unanimously approved a resolution to halt the flow of foreign jihadists to Iraq and Syria. The British Prime Minister David Cameron told the council that the poisonous ideology of extremism at the root of the threat must be defeated. He said it was becoming clear that jihadists were often influenced by preachers whose worldview could be used as a justification for violence. The peddling of lies... The idea that Muslims are persecuted all over the world as a deliberate act of Western policy. The concept of inevitable clash of civilization. We must be clear that to defeat the ideology of extremism, we need to deal with all forms of extremism, not just violent extremism.